0: Welcome to the Burning Archive. In this episode of the Burning Archive, we turn to the fourth large theme of the history of our times. That is, social fragmentation. Life is better in so many dramatic ways. We enjoy better societies, but worry that we have lost a sense of community. Could it be, That social progress is slowing and its old rival, social fragmentation, is going to overtake it in the marathon of history. That is the question for today's Burning Archive. I am Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very minor government official. And this is the Burning Archive Podcast, episode 11, where the past is never dead. The past is not even past. And where by thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. So I'm going to just dive straight into our topic of today, which is social fragmentation. And this is the fourth of the themes I've been pursuing in this podcast that are the big trends, changes underway in the history of the times, as I see it. And those four themes, just to recap, are imperial rivalry and imperial decline, uh, especially with America political decay, cultural decay and the prospect of cultural regeneration and finally social fragmentation and this is one where it's I'm still thinking through what the best name for this theme is but for now I've stuck with social fragmentation. So what does that mean? We live in interesting times. Life is better in so many dramatic ways. We are richer. We live longer. We're healthier. We have longer years of healthier life. We know more. We act less violently. We enjoy better societies. But we worry that there's something missing. That we've lost maybe a sense of community, lost a sense of togetherness, that the society as a whole doesn't work so well, that it's fragmented, that we live in social media echo chambers, not tight-knit communal villages. We enjoy the splendors of travel and film and TV images from every place on earth, but barely know our own neighborhoods. We choose our identities, but we edit out our past. I mean, there's no real doubt, I think, when you look at all the statistics that life is better. It's been demonstrated by people like Steven Pinker and Hans Rosling and many others that that you'd much rather live as an ordinary person today than at any other time in history. But there is still this this sort of shadow to all of that. The shadow of social progress is alienation or social fragmentation. All the gains of affluence, freedom, individual fulfillment. Seem to come with a loss of community, connection and continuity of place, culture, tradition, being part of something bigger. And this is an old old theme, I guess, in social theory, sociology, and history throughout the late 19th century and into the 20th century, there was this continuing theme of the transition from Gemeinschaft to Gesellschaft in uh, the German sociology. So broadly from community to society, uh, a sense of a, a bonded, connected community to a, a larger, more vibrant, bigger, but more disconnected life in the city. To articulate this theme doesn't mean that social progress is bad. No one wants to go back to what Karl Marx, I think, called the UDSC of rural life. No one wants to have to wash their clothes by hand in a in a huge big uh, metal vat. No one wants to have to work six days a week, 10 hours a day in largely manual jobs with very little prospects before them. But it does mean that in celebrating all the social progress, we should also have a look at what are the bad things that are happening to? What What are some of these forces of fragmentation? And just as things, social progress doesn't always need to work to the same rhythm. It doesn't mean that some of these forces of fragmentation or alienation or uh, um, social divergence. Um, as I said, I'm not quite sure what the right term is for this, but I'm sticking with fragmentation for now. They don't necessarily slow down when growth and progress start to stagnate. And in a sense, that is what I think has been occurring, especially over the last few decades. Accelerating perhaps, especially in the decade between 2000 and 2010, marked at the start by the 9-11 bombings of New York where there was a sudden sense of you know a dark shadow hanging over you know western liberal societies ending in that decade the global financial crisis and some of the some of the um, loss of hope that people could do things to to you know address the climate change sort of sense of Disappointment around not enough happening around climate change and the bailout of the banks and the betrayal, I guess, of many ordinary people across the, the world through that financial crisis. Over, you know, let's say 20, 40, 30 years, some rough period of time, the question is whether the benefits of social progress in liberal democratic societies are still happening but they're slowing and that the bad stuff is catching up and becoming more prominent. The bad stuff that goes along with some of that social progress. Once we've got the internet, that's well, great but what we do we do for the the bad stuff related to the internet, the loss of privacy, the loss of immediacy of life, or the the shadowy world of the dark web, and I think especially in the United States we see this dynamic. And the United States is a bit of a like a index case of of our societies, it's, it's like the drama that we all sort of look to, even though many of the aspects of our own societies in like Australia are quite different, but it sort of becomes the Broadway show w- with which we interpret our own society. And I guess I also see this this sort of revenge of the shadow, so to speak, or the, this this catching up of the shadow over the last couple of decades has been amplified by some of the other trends that I've been talking about in the podcast political decay so when political institutions can't deal well with social conflicts the social conflicts get worse imperial decay when a society feels that it is losing doesn't win anymore uh, that it's no longer number 1 that it's not the greatest nation on earth it starts to turn onto its sort of domestic enemies. It, it sort of fights within. And cultural decay. As there's less of a cohesive shared culture. Uh, it, it There's less of that uh, common language that can heal the social conflicts. Heal and sort of soothe the social conflicts in the society so that's why I guess this is the final final theme and they are all connected and in a way I guess I see this sort of unwinding of social fragmentation occurring in its most extreme way in America in the United States and that as I observe it from afar, it appears to be becoming a more polarized, so social fragmentation increasing, defeated imperial power and decline, deluded cultural cultural beliefs fading and being replaced with less convincing and powerful meaningful ideas, and a failed state. Its political institutions simply don't work anymore. It is as if the American mind has had a five-year, or maybe longer, but let's say a five-year post-2016 psychotic episode. course is the shower scene from Alfred Hitchcock's movie Psycho from I think 1960. I've explained how social fragmentation or divergence uh, let's call it social fragmentation fits into the four themes of my little history of our times that I've been developing in these podcasts over the last few weeks. Now Let's talk a little bit about what social fragmentation means. In short, I guess it's the opposite of social cohesion. Um, it's losing that sense of togetherness being part of one meaningful whole, of being in it together uh, with one's neighbours and other members of society. Maybe means also this sort of splitting off into little micro groups, little mini tribes of people like us. Now of course all societies are divided and there are many ways of, or, or let's say differentiated, like groups within the societies distinguish themselves more or less acutely from, from other groups within the society, as well as the outsiders. Australian versus foreigner is the outsider and within the society it's, I don't know, Collingwood supporter versus St Kilda supporter. So all societies are divided, but there are many ways of analysing these differences. Class, status, religion, gender, race, sexual preference, all all the many, many subcultures, many, many different. But generations, that's another one uh, that seems to also, you know, young people versus boomers. Okay, boomer, don't worry about social fragmentation, boomer. Uh, so many different ways in which um, societies are divided. But societies also foster cohesive identities too. So nationality is clearly one. We're all in this together, regional identities, Um Victoria versus New South Wales, Basque versus Catalan, nationality, faith, religion, race. uh, All these are also ways in which people develop cohesive identities and have them coexist with the ways in which they differentiate from others. And there's a bit of a dynamic about uh, the stronger you. There can be a I think, quite strong dynamic about group cohesion being fostered by or strengthened by hostility to others or at least finding a... One, that being a uh, in-group, out-group, the more tight you feel with your peers, the more separate you feel from uh, whoever your others are. Othering is almost... Uh, an essential process, I guess, in social relationships. As one author says, peace is a social problem. You know, if there is, if there's not an external enemy, some of that uh, hostility can be directed within. And maybe that's also why you have this growing problem, perhaps, of social differentiation, social fragmentation within. Uh, across this last cent you know, let's say century or uh, so of remarkable social progress, uh, less external wars, and yet maybe more internal social fragmentation. Over history, I guess there's a tug of war between social cohesion and social fragmentation, where the spread or the strength of a society's shared culture's and institutions can account for which which of the two parties at either end of the tug-of-war rope wins. Will it be social cohesion? It might be if there's a strong, bonded, meaningful culture. Or will it be social fragmentation? And a more fragmented society will tend to have fewer connections between different groups or between individuals and mid-level social institutions. So there are the big ways in which you feel belonging and connected to society, you know nation, religion, uh, generation, gender, all that sort of thing. But then there's also this middle layer of social institutions that have long been of interest to theorists of society, sociologists. Basically the French sociologist, well I mean classically let's say, the French sociologist Émile Durkheim dealt with uh, the problem of alienation. The, the sense of losing this sense of a meaningful uh, community to belong to. By uh, hoping that people will connect to some of these middle level associations. Their local church, their uh, youth club, their sporting club, their whatever. It, it It is the thing that helps give them a sense of belonging and togetherness. With, which isn't possible with like a vast big city. So again, a more fragmented society has more conflict between... These senses, these these um m- m- different way, different places for people to belong to, and there are maybe narrower ways of identifying who you belong with, and fewer experiences of togetherness with people who aren't like you. People don't meet in the 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 church, or don't meet in the um. The marketplace. They, you know, shop online and only go out with people like them or their closest sort of uh, people that they identify with. And a peculiar feature, perhaps, of today's societies is just the huge range of criteria on which people can differentiate themselves: our, our wealth, our education, our, our. Relatively large amount of leisure time, or that sort of thing, enables us to have an extraordinary plurality of identities. You could almost say, perhaps, that social fragmentation, or less, less, uh, with a less negative connotation, social differentiation, is the engine of identity politics. You know, it's sort of uh, the reason. There the, the more and more ways in which to. Devise and identify a claim on a claim for a specific identity within the political world, uh, and what fuels this engine is this process of what what fuels this process of differentiation, and the tug of war between cohesion and fragmentation isn't the sort of surface level. Sort of things within the society. It's not. It's the deep, more fundamental social processes. The basic things that start to define the way of life one has. It's not the flim-flam of politics. It's not the rise and fall of imperial armies. It's not even the flickering screams or waning traditions of the culture. But it's the deep underlying processes, the deep layers of social formation and belonging. Like family, like age and generation, like education, like religion or it's sort of modern reincarnation. Like communities of place. And these change on a long time frame. And that brings us to a remarkable book by a French demographer, Emmanuel Todd, which eerily, well, not eerily, I guess to some degree, I've adapted some of his ideas for my, my um, little history of our current times in this podcast. He, he, he sets out to provide an account of the forces that explain this surprising malaise of our current time, this sense that things are better, and yet something's not quite right. He even, in this book, talks about the prospective decline of the United States and the Anglosphere, Anglosphere and indeed perhaps the most frequently asked if trivial question in contemporary social studies, Why did Donald Trump win the election in 2016? So the book is called Lineages of Modernity. And its subtitle is rather grand, if also somewhat humorous. A History of Humanity from the Stone Age to Homo Americanus. There you go. Uh, published in 2017 in France and its English translation published in 2019. And it talks about the crisis of advanced societies and especially of the Anglo-American sphere and provides an account of how demographic changes, these deep social layers, generate this sense of crisis in advanced societies. So let's just take it for now that we that's a reasonable way of talking about things uh, and I'm just going to use this this book to provide a bit of uh, extra evidence and flavor for my ideas around social fragmentation so Emmanuel Todd is actually a demographer And although I guess he speaks broadly I guess in a sociological, almost an anthropological tradition Uh, And his big specialty is As you might expect perhaps with demography The study of populations and fundamental structures Is family systems So nuclear family versus different, different forms of family Kinship structures, that sort of thing. His book picks up many of the themes of the podcast. So I'm only going to pick out a couple of parts of it. Because much of it is an account uh, of, you know, it's a very... It's quite a long and global sweep of history uh, and an account of quite significant demographic and anthropological change. And does uh, present quite an interesting and fascinating argument, even if he does comment on, I guess, contemporary events uh, from time to time. Um, all sorts of complicated things across different cultures and all the rest of it. And it's a maddening book in some ways, maybe as a result of it being a translation of the French. Because you will find a rather clear and vivid sentence is immediately followed by obscure abstractions, so hunting it for a little bon mot can be a little bit difficult. But let me give you at least a feel of uh, some of the texture of this, uh, you know, argument about the history of humanity from the Stone Age to Homo Americanus. So when Todd looks at Emmanuel, Todd looks at today's society, he brings out how very unusual it is in historical or anthropological terms. So he says, our advanced societies have no equivalent in previous history. Never have human groups of such size been so rich, so old, so educated, and so devoid of collective beliefs and these transformations he he says go to basic social processes he uses the term primordial social processes things much sort of deeper and more fundamental than hopping on the internet or going out to dinner or sort of thing what family relationships or what family structures are like what the life cycle is like from you know childhood to adulthood to old age what education is like and education's role in transmitting culture and and connections between generations and how people generate a sense of belonging to a group and collectively these processes generate what he describes as the sort of anthropological Um, way of life. And he says that just like sedentarization, i.e. moving from being nomadic societies to settled societies and agriculture, the transformation underway is causing an upheaval in the way of life of the human species. So he's sort of putting this broad, big sort of social transformation that's sort of going on underneath the surface there with the birth of agriculture or or i guess the industrial revolution or something like that like one of these well-recognized fundamental changes in in the history of humanity he talks how the anglosphere is at the heart of the human at the heart of modern history uh, in in some senses his book is partly part of the debate on Globalisation versus populism Like what is really the meaning of globalisation Is it really something that's happening Are, are cultures converging around the world Or is our, are cultures diverging uh, What makes sense of the I guess the revolt against globalisation That seems to be occurring with populist movements Like uh, Trump and Brexit and, and a number of others around the world it's part of this argument about differentiation and convergence. But it's also a recognition that the Anglo-American world, the Anglosphere, has been dominant, as, as we discussed in some of the previous podcasts, over the last 300 years, the English and then the American empires. And he he challenges, I guess, the idea that globalization is leading to a certain convergence certain as in uh, absolutely sure convergence of the contemporary world to fit the cultural forms of the Anglosphere, uh, cultural imperial forms of the Anglosphere. He, He notes that economic globalization certainly brings benefits and products and all that sort of thing to everyone around the world, but that it actually accentuates differences because it sort of doesn't quite take in these underlying social processes that work to a deeper time frame. So he says societies forced to compete threatened with disintegration fall back on their original strengths and original values. Pushed too far free trade fuels universal xenophobia he says democracy as we know it in the 20th century is unlikely to return that you know my hypothesis about political decay is right and that um and that um we're sort of entering into some new post-democratic society that won't be the same oligarchies of previous times but is something that also won't be the democracy that was experienced for most most of the 20th century and one of his key points is that these social processes family education generation belonging are not necessarily more important or dominant or or causative in relationship to economics and culture and all that sort of stuff but they do operate on a different Time scale with different layer. there are different layers so to speak of social change he says the economy changes over 50 years that education is like on a 500 year cycle is what he describes which is essentially the he's essentially describing the time it took from say the the birth of printing and the to to move to a time of mass literacy across most of the world, uh, of near universal literacy across most of the world. Family, he says, is is a family systems, that is, uh, and we'll come to some of those a bit later, work on a 5,000-year time frame and religion on a 1,000-year time frame. And then Todd identifies a number of quite sort of specific and Practical and you know well-evidenced statistical major social changes. That are a sign of this big big transformation that he's talking about. This transformation that is creating an upheaval in how people understand their social relationships. So let me see there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of these. So number one is massive enrichment. We're an in incredibly much more wealthier society. Even then even if you look back to sort of the iconic world of nineteen fifties America, we are just so much richer than that, that era. And then of course, you know, you think about the billion people who've who've moved out of poverty in China over the last twenty or thirty years, maybe forty years now. There's the collapse in the birth rate as in the number of Children born per woman or or family over uh, the period from nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty. There's increased longevity. The average that life expectancy has increased enormously uh, over this period of time. There's been a dramatic increase, not so much in mass literacy or secondary education but a very dramatic increase in mass higher education. Many, 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 many more people, now really a majority of young people in most most, Western societies get a university degree. And then within that too, there's been a switch in gender roles so that women are actually overtaking men in educational attainment in most measures, which is a... I mean if you compare it to previous societies A fundamental and dramatic change uh, Not that women didn't have the capacity But they were not denied the resources And now there's, or denied the access I guess And then it's a, well, it's a, a key factor I guess of, of contemporary societies And then the last two he talks about The terminal erasure, erasure of religion Massive decline in religious belief in many societies, tempered perhaps by resurgence of some faiths like Islam and uh, and you know maybe Orthodox Christianity in the former Soviet uh, states, but certainly in places like Australia and like America, there is a big, big, big decline um, of both religious belief or people professing to have a religious belief and religious practice going to church. Then finally, he talks about the collapse of marriage inherited from religious times. So, I mean, marriage, I mean, I guess the whole gay marriage debate in pretty much all societies, you know, liberal democratic societies in the last uh, 20 years, I guess, has really been indicative of this because it's the transition from A concept of marriage that's rooted in a religious sacrament to a concept of marriage as a a, um, I guess a legal bond um, between uh, people through an elective choice that is devoid of any any religious thing not saying that's good or bad or whatever it's just it's just a social fact and then what he says is what happens he asks what happens to the existential objectives of human beings when they become statistically richer, older, more educated, more feminine and less numerous. Uh, Less numerous too, like in in some Europe, a, a lot of societies are actually going into a stage of population decline rather than population growth. I mean, in a way, we've sort of been insulated a little bit from that in Australia, but it's largely been because of migration. But if if you were to take migration out of the equation the fertility rate is lower than the replacement rate so there're not enough children being born to replace the number of people who are dying so if it weren't for migration in australia the actual total population would be in decline and that's what's happening in europe and in other parts of the world which have less migration he sees this combination of factors creating a feeling of powerlessness and populist revolt in advanced societies. He says the individualistic atomization at the economic level and the incapacity of collective action at the political level will spring from the development of higher education, the disappearance of religion, and the transformation of family structures. So I'm now going to explore three of these changes With a few historical examples and a bit of statistics just to bring out uh, the and dramatize the extent and nature of these changes and how they are reverberating in our current time of trouble and those three things are age and longevity life expectancy family structures and education and funnily enough i've actually had uh in my career as a very minor government official uh direct connections with each of these three major trends i've done work on population aging i've done work on issues related to family formation including in relationships for example to ivf and assisted reproductive treatment and i've also done work on on the explosion of higher education and had had direct connections with some of the people who set that in train in the in the 1980s in Australia. Hey, I thought I'd just take a minute to thank you all for listening to the show and just mention a few things where you could help me grow our audience and help make the show that little bit more successful. So do share links to the show on your social media preferred platforms, Twitter, YouTube, whatever, Instagram. And um, I'm not a great social media user, so please do get out there and Tell your friends about the show. You can also read more of my uh, writing at The Burning Archive, dot com, And also, I have a YouTube channel, The Burning Archive YouTube channel. And of course, you can also buy my book, Gathering Flowers of the Mind. Collected Poems, 1996, 2020. And there are a couple of other uh, things in the works as well. So do um, help us out. Like the show. Leave a review on iTunes. Um, and I don't know whether Spotify has some sort of way in which you can promote the show within Spotify. But do that too. The word about the burning archive. Okay, let's head on back to the show. Okay, so the first uh, of these little trends is around age and longevity, and it's always kind of fun when you look uh, at history and trying to realize some of the differences between your time and our time and how things change over time is to do a little trick of, you know, let's look back one year and then maybe five years and ten years, twenty, fifty, hundred, two fifty, a thousand years. What sort of things change in some of the fundamental measures of society around that? And you can get a really good sense of this with age, longevity and life expectancy. Funnily enough the best place in the world to do it is Sweden. Uh, for various reasons I'm not entirely sure. I think they had a great scientific tradition and a very good administrative uh, tradition. Sweden uh, was really the first society that had excellent early vital records birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates and as a result people have been able to go back and calculate very accurately life expectancy statistics. Average life expectancy at birth in Sweden Uh, and they're able to go all the way back to 1750 which is earlier than any other uh, society. And people can provide estimates but in the case of Sweden it's pretty reliable. So let's just do this sort of backward look at Sweden in terms of the average life expectancy and just get a sense of the dramatic, amazing change that has happened in people's social life over the last 250 years. It's projected that in 2050 in Sweden, the life expectancy at birth of a male will be 83 and of a female 86 a man or a woman let's say uh, in 2000 the life expectancy of a man in Sweden was 77 and of a woman 82 in 1900 so 120 years ago now the life expectancy of a man was 51 and 54 for a woman and in 1750 the life expectancy of, uh, at birth of a man was 35 and 38 for a woman. Now you may know life expectancy at birth and life is one measure. Uh, and life expectancy at 65 is another measure. Because life expectancy at birth is to some degree defined by the number of children who die young and that sort of thing. People who die in their 20s, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so just because in 1750 life expectancy was 35 didn't mean no one lived beyond 35. It just meant on average, that's kind of your chances of where you get to. If you were lucky enough to survive to 65 in 1750 in Sweden, you, you probably had 10 years left. Whereas today you have uh, 17 to 20 years left. So that's doubled over 250 years. So lifespan doesn't really lengthen. It's just that it's more that fewer people sort of fall off the perch. And look, obviously this isn't just a Swedish phenomenon. You can look at the same thing in Australia. And life expectancy shows this broad linear increase. Slow, gradual slope up. Pretty continuous growth up since the mid 19th century in 1890 in Australia or in the de- in the 1890s in Australia the life expectancy at birth of a man was 51.1 and of a woman 54.8 in 1960 that had increased to 67.9 for a man and 74.2 for a woman so nearly 20 years, uh, 20 uh, uh, extra 20 years of life in 70 years and in Twenty nineteen in Australia, that had increased to eighty point nine for a man and eighty five for a woman. So, compared to the eighteen nineties, and for it's roughly thirty extra years. So, in a hundred and twenty years, life expectancy is increased by thirty years. So, thirty over fifty is roughly that's sixty percent. more life. Wow. (laughs) Pretty amazing. And there are the same sort of stats again at 65, which show similar sort of basic and, you know, sort of like a doubling of the years you can expect at the age of 65 to survive. So now it's pretty reasonable for people to expect to survive into their mid 80s, whereas in the 1890s, if you are lucky enough to get to 65, it would be pretty unlikely for you to get to 80. So this change has an enormous impact, not so much on an individual lifespan, although I guess it does have that. Pe- people can confidently approach life in a way, and you know, the likelihood of death before 50 is now very low. So people can confidently approach life without worrying too much about external threats. But it also has a dramatic impact on social structure and your experience of social relationships. And this is most clear if you look at population age pyramids. So a little sort of bar, sort of stacked bar chart that shows the proportion the yeah the proportions of people at zero to five zero to five to ten etc all the way up to the 80s by uh, gender and back before even before 1960 it was basically like a, a straight pyramid two sloping lines that come together looks like a triangle at each age group uh, as people get there are fewer people. At older ages all the way up the scale And so within society there are just a hell of a lot more children Relative to grandparents and older people of all kinds Whereas in today's society It's pretty much uh, It's like how would you describe it it's, it's pretty much like a goes straight up all the way There's two vertical lines that go up and then towards the end, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, they rapidly come together. So there's pretty much roughly similar proportions of people uh, at all ages. And obviously there are a lot more age bracket in adulthood. I guess if you look at five year age brackets, there are only three or four age brackets that relate to children. 15 age brackets that relate to, to adults. So within the society, there's just a much more visible presence of older people and adults and fewer children around you. There's less likelihood of, of grief in early early life as a child, less likelihood of losing your parents, less likelihood of losing your grandparents as a child. So this change isn't just about paying for pensions and superannuation, it's actually changes the the fundamental change in ageing life expectancy and the population structure as a result changes a whole series of things about how we experience social life, how we experience the prospect of death, the likely risks of death, the um the 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 sort of generational cohesiveness or cross-generational connections that people have it and it can change I guess the pattern of finding meaning over life we can reliably expect to go through many many different phases of life we can reliably expect to enjoy 20 30 years after retiring and uh, have have, have uh, a wonderful sort of different phase of living. And this is just not really something that existed for people even 50 years ago, even 40 years ago. This is something that has really happened even within my own sort of lifetime. second big uh, social change remarked upon by Emmanuel Todd and that is sort of driving social change social differentiation is family systems now at one level as Todd says this is about the collapse of fertility rates between 1960 and 1980 and of course there's a huge growth in education for women and also the readily available contraception from 1960 with the pill and all that sort of thing and and also changes in religious practices and all that sort of thing which all contribute to these fertility rates but they're dramatic so and they happen across the world so in 1960 in Australia 3.45 so nearly three and a half children born per uh woman or per family and in 2019, that's down to 1.6, so less than half. In China, it's from 5.76 to 1.7, so that's about almost a quarter of uh, that level. In Russia, it's fallen from a much lower level, 2.52 to 1.5. In England, 2.71 to 1.63. In the United States, 3.65 to 1.71, so roughly similar to Australia. Similarly, there's been, uh, you know, a steady rise in the age of mother at first child from, I think, sort of like mid, late 20s through to early, early 30s. And that bumps up against a, I guess, a biological limit, which to some degree, people, you know, fertility, actual biological, the, whatever the right word for it, the biological potential fertility is. Uh, just declines dramatically um, from the early 30s and accelerates after the the, the mid-30s and uh, social change unfortunately can't really address that but there's certainly been a dramatic increase in the use of IVF and then that also creates possibilities for, for um, non-traditional families to have have children and all the rest of it. So this cre- again creates a significant change in basic patterns and structures of, of uh, family relationships. It makes incredibly more diverse plural uh, set of family systems and enormous blessings uh, with that, but are also uh, growing, growing diversity of experiences. Now, what Emmanuel Todd focuses on is not so much that fertility rate as the different family systems in different countries, uh, or cultures, and how they have uh, changed over time. And if I just quickly run through his typology of uh, six family systems... And gives a sense of what he's really saying here. and he I mean he's a demographer, he's a specialist in family systems so he he, he is going to uh, focus on this. But there's the pure nuclear family which is a couple and children. Uh, and that's common in Australia and the UK, the US, New Zealand, England, Canada, parts of Italy, Spain and Portugal. It's what we typically know I guess in our own uh, my own culture. And then there's the nuclear family with temporary co residence where an adult married child um, lives with the parents of one or other spouse. And this is common in Philippines, Belgium, the Eurasian Steppe, parts of Mexico, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, southern, uh, southern India and large parts of Southeast Asia and, and uh, in Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, parts of Indonesia. It's also you know, the, we will typically go and live with the the mother's parents when when children are young or when a new family is being formed. And then there's what he calls the stem family where there's a single typically male heir within the family who cohabits with the parents together with their children and so form a three generation family and then and this is common in Japan, Germany, Korea, South West France, Sweden and parts of Spain, Borneo and Portugal and you see it in like cross generational solutions for looking after old people are much more common in some of those um, some of those societies Then you have what he describes as the exogamous, so marrying outside of the family, communitarian family, where brothers are the same and there's male superiority. If you like, if you think about a large peasant household, Uh, this is quite common in China, Russia, amongst the Hopi Hopi Indians in America and in northern India. And then there's the endogamous as in marry within the family, marry cousins or whatever, communitarian family, where they're fathers and sons with closely related marriages, i.e. cousins, who, who sort of live together you know, in a large unit. Uh, and this is very common, I guess, in the Muslim world, in the Arab states, in Iran, Egypt and Pakistan. So, incredibly complicated how diverse family systems are, and when you think about it, with increasing migration around the world, certainly in Australia, common, uh, you wonder how much some of these uh, different family systems start to blend and mingle within the same society. And that's all. that's just it's again it's just a social fact. But you wonder what how that uh, generates uh, differences and uh, tensions within social life as well, as well as I guess ways of new. new Possibilities within it as well. Now, Emmanuel Todd argues that that uh, that there is a version of history that describes the modern nuclear family as a relatively new invention that came with the industrial West, and so it's a new invention that that replaced, if you like, things like the stem family or those communitarian families in other societies. In fact, Todd argues this is actually not correct that the, the undifferentiated nuclear family is what he describes as the typical primordial pattern in most, in, in less developed cultures and societies it, it's the typical you know, if he's writing the history of humanity from the stone age, it's that earlier pattern of, of small bands of uh, uh, human groups would form, and that it's actually more the communitarian families and the STEM families that we see in Japan, Germany, Korea, China, Russia, uh, the, the Muslim world, which are the more complex social developments over time. But the Anglosphere is very much characterized by. It's the predominance of the modern nuclear family within their societies. And so it is a, it is the social pattern that formed that, that Anglosphere. He says the technological and economic modernity of the West coincides with rather archaic family systems. So when the West urges the rest, some of these other societies I've talked about to have family systems and social relationships like this, including elevating the status of women or gay marriage or whatever. Uh, he says it's actually a challenge to long established, complex developments of family systems in these societies. It's calling on them to deconstruct systems that had taken thousands of years to develop. And then when we throw in all the other complexities that come in with with families of gender relationships, gender division of labor, all these sorts of things, sexuality, generational relationships, you get this extraordinary level of differentiation of people's different experiences of family systems within our societies as well probably as some of these more traditional ones and again it's not either that's not a it's not a negative or a negative judgment on that it's just saying oh that's a social fact kind of thing and how do people process and experience that that growing differentiation and complexity and uh, in people's sort of basic ways of life, given how fundamental they are to it's like like Todd's question before, what how do people process this these basic questions of their existence when they live are richer, older and living in family systems that don't have necessarily a, a clear culture to process. And clearly they do. And there's all sorts of generations of things. But I guess my, the question is, does that drive more and more of this process of there are, you know, lots and lots of micro groups in the society that will have fundamentally different ways of life and have more and more challenges talking across the different different um, social boundaries? Okay, the third big theme of uh, change is one of those big, big signs of the times that uh, Emmanuel Todd talked about, along with mass enrichment and um, loss, you know, collapse in fertility, collapse of religion, was the massive growth in mass higher education. Now, if you quickly have a little look at uh, and as I said before, he sort of views the cycle of education as going on a five hundred year sort of um, cycle. Let's say where which he really sort of talks about the the change post printing, which I guess occurs both in China and slightly, I mean, in Europe, but also slightly earlier in China, mass uh, printing, which promotes broader literacy and then in the 19th century especially you start to get mass primary education schooling systems which contributes to growth in literacy rates a lot of those schools are also church-based schools so by about 1900 back when we got an average age of about like, average life expectancy of about 50. Literacy rates have been raised in the United States, England, Australia to roughly 95%. In some of the more sort of agricultural sort of European societies like Italy and Spain, it's about 50 And as a contrast, like Russia, you know, 20 years before it goes into the uh, Bolshevik re- revolution in which it, the Russian peasant and uh, Russian commune plays a huge role, literacy rates are about 20 percent. So that's education revolution one. or well, let's call it two because if you like first education revolution is the spread of reading and all that sort of stuff post mass printing. The third then educational revolution is mass secondary education so high school and that really grows in most of our societies we're talking about from about 1900 to 1950 1960 1960 1970 maybe so you get to set a point where more and more people complete 12 years of schooling or at least 10 years of schooling i'd say probably more than 10 years of schooling really we only got to about our current completion rates on year 12 In Australia in I think probably the 80s or 90s like um, that sort of time frame. So big educational revolution there and this also is really occurs in an interesting time because the period 1900 to 1950 is also the great period I guess of reversal of inequality, the sort of reversal from the I guess the aristocratic world of the 19th century to a much more democratic world. Uh, the introduction of things like income tax and, and the loss, the, the breakdown of colonial empires and the breakdown of aristocratic social status type uh, privileges. So paradoxically the 20th century up to about 1970 actually sees a decline in inequality. And clearly mass secondary education goes along with that and promotes enormous opportunity for people. Fundamentally changes uh, their experience of life. And then there's the third big wave of uh, educational or the fourth. Let's call it the fourth, which is because I'm forgetting about printing and stuff. The fourth wave is the growth of mass higher education. So again, just a few stats here. So. In 1900, and I think these are stats from America, about 3% of men and 2% of women had a university degree by the age of 25. Like hardly anyone. In 1940, that had increased to about 7.5% of men and 5% of women. By 1975, that had increased to 27%. Uh, of men and 20, that had increased to 27% of men and 22.5% of women by the 2000s it had got to 30% over 30% so effectively m- multiplication of uh, a factor by it's 10 times over the century
1: the the proportion of
0: people with a uni- higher education has uh being multiplied by 10 over uh, a century uh, probably by about well by about 15 for women even maybe 20 for women and by 2019 we've got to the point where over 50 percent of Australians aged 25 to 34 have a university degree And you can see the lag, so like about 34% of 55 to 64 year olds, my age group, have a university degree. So between the generation of me and the generation of my children, it's moved from a third of the people within my peer group, let's say, my or my generational group, have a university degree to over half of my uh, children's group have a university degree and again uh, my university education is one of the great blessings of my life it's one of the reasons i (laughs) am doing this podcast so i certainly don't begrudge that and in my own working experience i remember working with the people who helped introduce the Higher Education Contribution Scheme or HECS which was really the funding mechanism that enabled the mass expansion of universities so that much larger proportion of people could attend university. So it's undoubtedly a positive social progress thing but I guess what, what Emmanuel Todd has to say about it is that there is that shadow of social progress which is that with more and more people doing the the degree that education becomes that there's stratification i guess within that you know some degrees are more equal than others and there's diminishing perhaps benefits of some of the degrees it's not like people are having a different experience to say that period nineteen hundred. 1970, where more and more people are getting a fundamental education, and it's in a more prosperous society with diminishing inequality. What's happening in the period 1970 to now is that inequality within the society is actually increasing dramatically, so as in wealth and income inequality is, is increasing, and education is becoming more of a basis. For social stratification. And also a basis of a cause he says of ideological cleavage. So combined with a range of other social forces I guess. You get the distinction between let's say hipsters and bogans. um, Between the Harvard elite or the, the Ivy League elite in America. And the deplorables you get the, the hipster proof fence and the quinoa curtain. And uh, this has been shown by Todd, but also I think quite recently by Thomas Piketty, who became famous for writing a big book on uh, inequality of wealth and income. It showed more and more that education is becoming the critical or a critical factor that determines Or, or as a marker, let's say, of education, of of political belief and ideological cleavage, Um, the the people who might support Macron in France are different educationally to the people who would support uh, Marie Le Pen. Same deal in America with Trump and uh, Hillary Clinton is, which was looked at by Emmanuel Todd. And look, I'm not sure if it quite works quite the same way in in Australia, but I think there is that element of the the difference between, I guess, that growing sense of the difference between Scott Morrison's quiet Australians and the the, the inner city elites. So I, I mean, I haven't seen the statistics around it, but I suspect there's similar, a similar kind of sense of ideological cleavage related to experiences of higher education. Todd argues that the other aspect of this mass growth of higher education is sure there's more people with a degree, but the actual quality of that education has also declined. And I think that's probably true. It's also started to stagnate. And then that helps drive... A bit of a growing sense of them versus us within the, within the educated group. So he says, throughout the advanced world, a new educational stratification has broken the unity of the body of citizens. A new inegalitarian subconscious has pulverized the ideologies and remnants of religion left over from the age of primary education. The crisis of democracy and the rise in populism are universal phenomenon. And he goes on, and this I find a very fascinating argument. I'm not sure it's 100% true, but I think it's a fascinating argument, which I'm going to move on to a little bit uh, next week uh, in the podcast. So he says, advanced societies must therefore live in a state of tension. Universal primary education indefatigably nourishes the possibility of democracy. Higher education, no less, tirelessly nourishes a higher class, which, because it is selected by merit, thinks itself intellectually and morally superior in rights. This superiority... And let me just break there, and so that we get the, <laughs> the hipsters versus the bogan's, the de- you know the, denunci- the denunciations by the political elite of the deplorables, all that sort of thing. This superiority is a collective illusion. The homogeneity and conformism engendered by the mechanism of selection, by which he means you know academic selection, produced the ultimate paradox. Of a world above, by which he means, kind of, we're a bit special. We're in this, this, um, this special bubble uh, of of uh, elite education, subject to intellectual introversion, but unsuited to inter individual thought, and and he describes the um, the kind of elite, let's say created by this social trend of mass higher education within a growingly unequal society, with a stagnating educational performance and enormous competition for for social status in a more fragmented society. He describes the elite that is developed out of that as idiotic and somewhat immoral Uh, pretty harsh judgment I guess but there you go that is Emmanuel Todd's theory of things and the fascinating thing I guess is he essentially proposed this combination of things of the big transformation of society in ways that are deeply unsettling for people because they go to people's fundamental ways of life the, the threats to people's sense of what their family or systems and their, their, their religious beliefs and their sort of, I guess, moral worlds like the, and the growing, I guess, polarization of society, partly driven by mass education that both fosters a sense of, I guess, superiority, but then Without because people get out of uni and find that you know it's hard to get a job, and you know the education doesn't necessarily equip them for what they need to do, and they maybe didn't get such a great education after all, and um, but they still feel a bit special but a little bit disappointed. It creates this sort of sense of tension and fragmentation in society. This sort of sense of resentment, I guess. And, and then also there's the whole, the whole sort of in group, out group sort of thing that he also, also talks about in his book, which I haven't really talked about there, but that whole sense of in the absence of external enemies, societies will tend to turn, societies, groups will cohere around an external enemy. And then, then they either, turn to xenophobia like or they sort of turn that same conflict into in groups out groups within their society hipsters versus bogans elite versus uh, deplorables so that is in conclusion where we are with Emanuel Todd and let me just bring out again so what We've been trying to get to here is some of these social roots of the trends of our time. The four big themes that have been discussed in the podcast. Again, not saying these social changes are good or bad, but just that they generate shifts in people's experience of life, their experience of social relationships, their experience of uh, meaning uh, and connection with other people. And perhaps also create a more fragmented, diverse society that has not quite yet found the counterbalancing uh, social glue that can stitch together this more fragmented society. Now there are other things that Todd talks about too, particularly around inequality in religion, but I haven't really, and the sort of uh, xenophobia. There's this fascinating chapter, where he describes uh, Donald Trump's sort of victory in 2016 arising from these trends, which is described. The chapter is Donald Trump as Will and Representation, which is a represent is a reference to the early 20th early 19th century German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who wrote a book called The Will. Uh, what was it? Something as will and representation, anyhow, there you go. The idea of Arthur Schopenhauer and Donald Trump in the same uh, image is quite amusing. The picture I'm painting here is these, these, this tug of war between cohesion and fragmentation in the society. This tug of war between social fragmentation and social progress. With every step forward... There's this shadow that's coming along with us that is also changing its form. And it's especially education, uh, I guess, that we might be turning to next week. Because education aggravated by the combined effects of age, generation, family system, different ways of belonging. And then Deepened by the growing inequality that has been happening uh, over the last, well let's say from 1970. Inequality of income and wealth. Driven in part by imperial rivalries. Generate this social polarization. This sense of elites versus the rest. Of globalists versus populists. Of somewheres versus anywheres. Of hipsters versus bogans. What Emmanuel Todd says is and it's partly this theme of social fragmentation as a sort of a dark side of globalization that, that I'm getting to, I guess. So Emmanuel Todd says globalization can be analyzed as a collapse of the notion of equality created by mass illiteracy in all advanced societies, but especially in the sphere so that's why I'm so interested in Todd because he connects this sense of social fragmentation of fundamental changes in our ways of life generated by basic demographic uh, trends neither good nor bad but just definite and that demand all sorts of different political, cultural, social responses and it helps tie together the various themes that I'm talking about. So next week we have a little bit more of a look at this this theme of elites versus the rest. Because I think this theme of social fragmentation is in part driven by education systems, but it's also clearly driven by unequal distributions of power and wealth in the so- in the society. Uh, and it has been one of the big, I guess, talking points at the time of, you know, the elites versus the rest, that sort of thing. But also there's a growing competition within the elites. So I think it's almost coming back to one of the uh, issues I touched upon in the uh, one of the podcasts of political decay of different castes or castes within society of the merchants and the sages and the uh, warriors. There is a historian, Peter Turchin, who talks about uh, a major social crisis blo- uh, looming that is partly indicated by growing competition within elites there's only so many powerful positions in our society but more and more people who are educated and capable of uh, occupying them and increasing tension and conflict around that so that's the theme i'm going to talk to about next week and then the third episode after that is going to look at uh, this whole concept of change itself and we have a part of the social uh, tensions in our time is how much do we as people embrace change how much do we want to kind of stick with tradition uh, or just stick with continuity I should say rather than tradition continuity in a way of life And I've got to say, after that, I am really itching to start to talk about some of the developments in Imperial Rivalry. Uh, And we might also do a few uh, interesting things. There might be a couple of very special guests appearing on the show. So um, quite a long episode this week on social fragmentation. Let me just try to sum up again. So I've been talking about social fragmentation as the fourth of my Themes are uh, of political decay, imperial decay, cultural decay, and social fragmentation. And, and trying to sketch out a history of our times and social fragmentation, I put down to this underlying sociological, let's call it, process of group of of a tug of war between forming cohesive identities within groups and fragmenting those identities driven in part by basic basic processes how families are structured how the life cycle is structured how old people are what you know how many children there are relative to adults that sort of thing and all those things are changing in ways that we can't really, no one is really controlling it, neither good nor bad, but are sort of demanding uh, more diverse responses, which is a terrific thing. But with the diversity, there is this, this or the differentiation, let's call it, because I don't necessarily want to get into debates about diversity or that sort of thing. With the increasing differentiation and the, the huge range of potential identities we have, that, that tug of war between cohesion and fragmentation sort of changes, changes balance. So a bit of sociology, a bit of statistics, a bit of demography, a bit of anthropology today, as well as a bit of history. Let me just remind you all that this is the Burning Archive podcast. Where the past is not dead, the past is not even past. And I do hope you stuck with me through this rather long episode. I did think about maybe breaking it into two, but and until next week, do remember, uh, as Ezra Pound will say in a moment, what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. See you next time. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage, Whose world, or mine, or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium, Though it were in the halls of hell. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be left from thee.